Welcome to the Single Lady Estates podcast. My name is Bobby Wasserman, and I'm the founder of Single Lady Estates. Thank you for spending some of your time with us. This season, we are all about advocacy. From having the confidence to advocate for changes in all aspects of your life, and of course, with our focus on your home. But today, we are continuing to speak on personal empowerment with a discussion on prenups and protecting your assets. So, according to a 2022 Harris poll, only 15% of married or engaged adults reported signing a prenup. That's horrible. <laughs> It is an improvement though, because the same Harris 2010 poll only reported 3% of people signing a prenup. So ladies, if you have assets prior to marriage, please, please protect those assets. And that is our perfect segue to our guest, Judith Kaluzny, a retired attorney from Orange County, California. Judith spent 43 years in law first as a family attorney for over 25 years, and then as a full-time mediator. Currently, she guest lectures at universities and legal events and is the author of A Marriage License Handbook, which is available at Barnes & Noble and on Amazon. And by way of a teaser, she is busy writing her next book, The American Way of Divorce, A Fraud on Families, which I love that title, (laughs) Judith. (laughs) But before we get started, I really want to remind our listeners, as with every attorney we speak with, this podcast is a broad discussion and not legal advice. Laws vary from state to state. So let's get ready for our discussion. And thank you so much for joining us today, Judith. All right. It's a pleasure to be here. I love your background. Can you tell your story about how you got into law and specifically family law? Ah, well, I got into family law because it was women who called me when they found out when they were looking for a lawyer for a divorce. Women were looking for women lawyers in those days. Anyway, how I got started, I uh, was going through a divorce and uh, I figured I'd have to do something. I couldn't imagine going to work as a clerk in a grocery store. I had seven children, you know, and Wow. And like spending an hour to go to work and an hour to go home and all the cooking and the cleaning and the laundry. Anyway, so I was part of a carpool and one of the carpool people was uh, a lawyer. And I said, you know, uh, Anita, what am I going to do? And she said, you could go to law school. I said, but I don't have a college degree. She says, that's okay. You can go to Western State. Everybody's second chance law school. So <laughs> so I did. My original career, well, it was a college dropout, but it was journalism. Ah. And, and I had worked for, uh, when I was married, I worked for the local newspaper in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. In any case, so uh, I uh, signed up for Western State, and I was accepted in their first full-time class. I love that. And when did you go to law school? Uh, 1973. Oh, in addition, there was an added sort of incentive. During the divorce court hearing, a husband's lawyer brought up the fact that I had applied to law school. And the judge says, well, it's admirable of you to want to better yourself, but there's not enough money to go around. So you have to go to work. 
So, ouch. Uh, wow. Wow. Seven kids was apparently not considered work. <laughs> well, you know, the 1970s really saw a lot of change for women and how the law treated them. I'm thinking about the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, among other legislation. So what was law school like as a woman in the 1970s? Oh, it was amazing. In my law school, there were three sections of students. And each section had five women and 55 men. <laughs> uh, there you go. <laughs> and in our first year, our contracts teacher was a, was a woman. And uh, she got so much harassment from the guys that at midterm, she quit. <gasps> wow. And, uh, and I was walking down the hallway with one of the young women, and we were talking about how we felt kind of pretty bad about a, our only woman instructor leaving. And we decided to post a note in the student lounge and have other women, you know, come and talk about what it's like being a woman in law school. Well, you would have thought, Bobby, that, that we were starting a revolution. The administration got terribly upset like we were <laughs> somehow <laughs> conspiring to take over the school. I love that. <laughs> so I anyway, love that. that led to founding of the Women's Caucus at, at my law school. Excellent, excellent. Did she end up staying or did she leave? Oh, no. Oh, no. She was oh, gone. She was done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was just kind of curious, too. You know, it's one thing to go to law school and then you have people like that judge Right? That's yes. like, oh, go go back to the kids. How were job prospects once you graduated? Well, you know, most of my fellow classmates were doing things like interning with the GA or with a public law center or lawyers. I had all the kids to take care of. I was not available oh. to that kind of thing. So I'm finished with law school. And I says, well, here I am covered with status and power. Now what do I do? <laughs> and I got a telephone call, and it was from a woman lawyer who uh, did civil rights cases. And my daughter had consulted her while she was in high school about uh, some classes that were for boys only. And anyway, so this woman called me up, and she said, I see by the paper that you've passed the bar. I'm willing to share my office with you four days a week for half the rent. She says, the other four days, I work in L.A. in my father's office. That was her solution to jobs, is to work for her dad. <laughs> wow. Anyway, so she said for half the rent. Well, believe it or not, her rent was only $150 a month. So I started out with having an office for only $75 a month. Very nice. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Now, and now I own my own building. There you go. I love that. I love, there you go. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, that start really led to a very long litigation career. I think it was what, from 1986 to 2000? Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the end of 2019 was about when I quit. And that was, that was just before the pandemic. It's like, how did I know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm curious, in regards to family law during that time, what did you see? What was, um, I think the word I want to use is like the evolution. 
What did you observe and experience during that evolution well, in litigation? The first thing that I should mention is the change in domestic violence. Mm. When I started practicing, it was 1976, which incidentally was the International Year of the Woman. Oh, oh was it? <laughs> anyway, yes. At first, when I started, it was almost embarrassing to represent a woman. Not wow. because of the way the judge treated her. You know, I felt embarrassed, you know, for her. Yeah. And the big change is now domestic violence is taken seriously. Ah. And we have good laws and it's domestic abuse. And what's included in domestic abuse is emotional abuse and financial abuse. There you go. It's not just physical abuse. Nice. Okay. Yeah. When that evolved, what did you see in those specific areas? Like fast forward 10, 15 years. Well, it was a lot of work by women. Okay. I was part, uh, kind of a subsidiary part. I would show up just for, as we called it then, crowdsmanship <laughs> to hearings. Yeah. In Orange County, we established the third or fourth shelter for battered women in the USA. Nice. The first two were in San Francisco. And then I think there was one back east. And this shelter was a product of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. And how it came about was that there was a, a subsection of the National Organization for Women that was studying domestic violence. And then the president, our local president said, listen, there's this uh, community action council that has funds to distribute and we need a grant for something for women. So the organization decided to apply for funds to start a shelter for battered women. And so I went to the hearing at the Community Action Council. The motto of Lyndon Johnson's Community Action was maximum feasible participation, which I thought was pretty nice. The change, uh, the name was changed later to Community Development Council. I uh. guess action was, action was too threatening. <laughs> exactly, right? In any case, they recommended a $20,000 grant, which had to be approved by the Board of Supervisors. So that went through. So we started the shelter with uh, $20,000 and one and a half employees and five board members. Wow. And now it's, it's huge. They even provide second stage housing as well as an original uh, shelter. It's got a million dollar budget. That's fantastic. Wow. Yeah, and to think we just started from that little thing. It was just, you know, women working hard and being brilliant. I love it. Other than domestic violence, are there any other really substantial changes in divorce? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In the 70s, aside from my case about, which was little noted nor long remembered, about spousal support, there was a judge's wife who, she had been married 30 years and did the full judge's wife lifestyle, and, uh, but she had a PhD in psychology. It was 30 years old. She had never practiced psychology. But the court said, well, you can just go out. You got a PhD and, and work. And they gave her a mere $935 a month spousal support. Wow. That raised such a scandal 
a public scandal, the state law was changed. And there are now a set of at least 24 factors a judge must consider in awarding spouses support. It's a very serious item now. Yes, I know other women that were in that exact same circumstance where they had a degree, some had advanced degrees, they opted to stay home with their children and their husbands made very, very good living, were able to do so very comfortably. And then fast forward 20 years, they get divorced and the judge was doing the same thing. Well, you have a degree. Right, right. Well, with no experience. That, <laughs> that you know? no longer could happen in California. Yeah. Ah, oh, fantastic. Yeah, that was a while ago. When did that law change in California? Uh, in the late 70s. Roughly. Late 70s. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. what I hear from these older women. Right. And there's a computer program that's used for uh, temporary support. And, um, you know, they, the judge just plugs in the numbers and the algorithm prints out the support. That's temporary. Fabulous. Well, but at final support, which is what they call when you go to trial, the final support, the judge mm -hmm. specifically by law cannot use a computer program. The judge must consider all these factors, including the time spent out of the job market for taking care of the household. Mm. And it includes what jobs are available and how much experience the supported person would have to be able to get a job. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. So you went from the family law into full-time mediation. Yes. When did you get interested in mediation? And actually, what prompted you to do that? Ah, well, as I said, I was involved with the Shelter for Battered Women, which, by the way, was called the Women's Transitional Living Center. Oh, wow. And this name was chosen to sound, this was 1976. To be uh -huh. non to be non-threatening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, yeah. That works. Yeah. 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 Transitional living. Uh-huh. Of course. So um <laughs> in any case, one of the women who who did some research there was Mildred Pagelow, who wrote the book Woman Battering. And she was mm -hmm. an early researcher in domestic violence. Wow. And uh, she got a PhD in sociology. Well, what do you do with a PhD in sociology? All you could do is be a professor. <laughs> and so she then, it was just a new field starting up mediation. And she took mediation training. She asked me to be her attorney consultant. And so we met at my office with her clients. And pretty soon I was sitting in the entire mediation. <laughs> and, and then I thought, you know, this makes sense. I mean, family law litigation is completely illogical. Oh, interesting. So next thing I took mediation training myself and I decided not to go to court anymore. Good for you. And then, yeah. so it was interesting when I was looking up your book on Amazon, there are a lot of marriage handbooks, right? Very generic, but you named your book Marriage License Handbook. What's the implication right. of that? Well, it's the same size as our driver's license handbook. <laughs> so I call it rules of the road for getting married. I love it. It talks about the legalities. It's not just, you know, your emotional readiness. It talks about what to think about in writing a premarital agreement. 
it talks about thinking about why are you getting married? And it talks about rights of children. And just like the Department of Motor Vehicles, it includes a test. <laughs> it's so funny. So marriage is such an emotional issue. And it's, I think it's hard for people to step back and really think logically about it. Well, legally speaking, marriage is a contract. Yeah. And if you don't write your own contract, you have the state law contract by default. There you go. So one way or another, you're going to have a contract. Oh, people don't think of it like that, yep. like as a contract. Well, that's the origin of marriage. By state law, it's a contract. And the state has a contract for you if you don't write your own. So for people who are hesitant to have a contractual conversation, what, what do you tell them? Well, gosh, if you can't be frank and talk about things, yeah. uh, it can only get heavier during marriage. So let's dive into the world of pre- and post-nups. First, what's the difference between a prenup and a post-nup, just so we're all on the same page with the same definition, at least for the purpose of this discussion? Okay. A, a prenuptial agreement is a contract that you write to talk about your assets and anything else you want to put in there. And it's written before marriage, but it does not become effective until you're actually married. And uh, there's an interesting little note about any kind of a premarital agreement, and that is if the two of you agree to waive rights in the other's pension in your prenup, that's a useless agreement because only a spouse can waive rights to another spouse's pension. Oh, wow. And you're not spouses yet. Therefore, you have to write an agreement to waive the pension after you're married. Is that, uh, thank you, that's huge advice. Yeah. There's other reasons you can write post-marital agreements, like uh, supposing that you inherit some money. Well, as long as you keep it separate, it is your separate property. However, if you want to spend it on something that's of mutual benefit, you can write in a contract between you and your spouse to say that this amount of money shall remain my separate property. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Or maybe you're getting nervous about your spouse's spending patterns. I did a post-nup for one family where wife spending was in husband's opinion, out of control. And he was getting real nervous about his credit. He did not want to get a divorce, but we did an agreement that separated their finances. And I recommended that they should file this agreement with the county recorder because filing it with the county recorder gave official notice to any creditor that her debts were not community debts. Interesting. And she signed it? Oh, yeah. We negotiated it. Yeah. You know, she understood what he was talking about. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. We, we, the two of them met together because she wanted to stay married, too. Oh, look at that. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, what a great solution. Indeed. I'm kind of curious with for people of different ages, what should people look to protect that they might not think of, whether you're getting married in your 20s or maybe getting married in your 50s. Right. Well, it's 
any kind of asset, especially that you might want to be clear about, or any kind of debts, or any kind of a business that you want to be clear about. Let's say that uh, husband has taken up day trading on his computer. Now, let's assume that he had a stock portfolio before they got married. Mm -hmm. If he does nothing with that stock portfolio, but let his manager manage it, that remains a separate property. If he takes a hand in managing and spends, you know, every Sunday evening for a couple hours online, that gives his stock portfolio a community aspect because he's spending his time during marriage and his efforts, and that makes it a community interest. My hunch is people do not think like that <laughs> naturally, right. right? Yeah. So. So you want to be clear that this remains a separate property? You would write an agreement to that effect. I mean, there's no rule that says you can't write more than one agreement. You mentioned like assets, debt, and businesses. Is there any other asset that people might not think of an asset? Like that to me is so nuanced. Someone who becomes a day trader, husband or wife, becomes a day trader and then that commingles funds. Are there any other like special circumstances like that? Well, um, maybe if the parties are have greatly different incomes, they might want to deal with that. Or let's say that one of them is taking time out of the workplace to take care of children. You could include an agreement how to compensate for that. You know, there's one thing that, that people ought to know, and that is about Social Security. Ah. I knew this intellectually. But when I reached 65, total of disclosure, <laughs> I applied for Social Security and I cannot get the Social Security I'm entitled to for 17 years of marriage plus whatever I'm entitled to from my own earnings later. You cannot. I have to take one or the other. Oh, well, I had a very so good Social Security advisor, and she says, well, if you're going to keep on working, why don't you take his, the married portion now, and when you reach an older age and you've earned more money, you can switch to your own. <laughs> I love that. Excellent. Yeah, and that was excellent advice. Yeah. Uh, but when, women ought to know that. Yes. Or that, wait, well, I'm, I'm assuming it's the woman usually who takes the time out to take care of the kids. Yes. It could apply to a man as well. Yes. I, or, uh, or in these days of with, with uh, same-sex marriage. Whoever stays home. Yeah. Let's talk about common law marriages, because I think women, especially with our earning power now, really need to better understand the implication of common law marriages. Well, in... In California, common law marriage is not recognized. Ah. Common law marriage means that you're living together and holding yourself out as husband and wife. So people might think you're married, but you're not. And in some states, I guess that's called common law marriage. Texas, for example, my daughter was taken to a hospital in a coma to a trauma center in Texas. She was a resident of New Mexico. They said her partner could not make decisions because they were not married, oh even though they'd been together for 30 years. Uh, they said Texas does not recognize common law. Well, it turned out that New Mexico now 
has a law that recognizes a long-term relationship as having legal consequences. Okay, there you go. Right. So by New Mexico law, he could have been making decisions based on what their actual circumstances were. But could he have made those decisions in Texas? That's Well, if Texas had known what New Mexico law said, yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I will say one thing about the famous case of palimony in California. Yeah. <laughs> that, I always think of Lee Marvin, Lee Mar- which was a very long the, time ago. The Marvin case, yeah. It was that Michelle Triola did not prove that they had held themselves out as a married, almost a married couple. That they had, oh, I know, the basis was she could not show that they had an agreement to share equally. Oh, there was no written agreement. Not even a verbal agreement. Oh, wow. You know, like a verbal agreement could be shown by discussions with friends or comments made with friends. She could not come up with any witnesses to say that they had any kind of an agreement or understanding. If you're not familiar with the Lee Marvin case, I believe they were living together for seven years. I think this was in the 1980s. And she was, I think, suing for... Support. Like spousal support, right? Yes, yeah. And they weren't married. And so this became a huge, at that point, you know, people started, were starting to live together more, more commonly. Right, and that's right. why the case blew up right. into national headlines. Right. And it sort of clarified everybody's status. So we could, you know, take note. You know, I mean, the old word for spousal support was alimony. Mm-hmm. So with a play on words, they called the Lee Marvin case palimony. Because <laughs> if they had when, been pal pals for years. I have a question with um, with people living together and now, you know, with same-sex marriages being legal and if you're just living together in a romantic relationship, what is defined as long-term? And again, this is very general. Go please go look up your state law. It's not just long-term. It has to do with having an agreement to share. Okay. And as I say, it could be proven by conversations as well as behavior. But of course, something in writing is always better. Uh, Cheaper to prove, too. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's an old saying is that a verbal agreement is worth the paper. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So, I mean, and for women, for single women who invite someone into their home, uh, a romantic partner into their home, there could be real legal and financial consequences to that over the long term. So that's really kind of the point I want to drive home. Yeah, consider, supposing he moves in and he says, I'm going to do my share, babe. You know, I'm going to pay the mortgage for you. Well, then if they separate, he might claim an interest in the house because his earnings made payments. That's right. Actually, that was an interesting premarital agreement that I did. There was this young couple, wife-to-be, was living with their parents. And the couple intended to continue living with her parents. She was paying the mortgage on the house as rent. And a husband was willing to say that if she continued paying the mortgage, now her earnings would be community property. But their premarital agreement established that if she used community earnings to pay the mortgage, he would not get any interest in the house. 
So we kept it separate in the title and the ownership with her parents. There was a study recently that I think 30% of married women out-earn their spouses. Aha! Yay! (laughs) And it's growing. So ladies, please take heed of this information. (laughs) Right. I'm just kind of curious, are you seeing a difference in the approach to prenups in gender or generations? Are there differences than maybe in the past? Uh, People are more willing to do them. Okay. They're, They're more practical. Interesting. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the mediation process and perhaps, you know, when to consider mediator involvement? If you're going through a divorce or if you have a hard time talking to the other person and you need practice in clear communication, you know, you would maybe have a mediator help you out. One of the key things about mediation is not only do you have to have a willingness to agree, you have to have a willingness to disagree. So a mediator could help you express your disagreements if you feel like, you know, well, you know, mostly women are trained to be nice. Yes. In this country, it's controversy is considered a no-no. Mm-hmm. But you have to be willing to stand up and say no. First of all, you should have a mediator that has had training. Yeah. A mediator helps to clarify and helps to assure that everything is valued appropriately mediator helps you express what you're trying to say. Mm. A mediator would help to kind of balance the equities in your discussion. One of the big differences as far as divorce is concerned, I had a, a young man lived across the street in an apartment house and he saw my sign out. His wife had filed and served a divorce and her lawyer had first thing got them to agree to a parenting plan, get that out of the way. Mm. Because in the meantime, they had a lot of assets. They had two or three real estate properties and they had a lot of financial accounts. So he came over and he wanted to know, can we mediate the rest of this? Well, I said, I couldn't contact her because she already had a lawyer. But for him, I prepared intramarital agreement that set forth how they could go about evaluating and dividing their assets and in particular, with the help of a certified divorce financial advisor. Oh. And I even outlined uh, a fair way how to choose the financial advisor. And in this preliminary agreement, we included good spousal and child support, including payment of the house and all the debts. Anyway, she got this and she rejected it. She fired her nice lawyer. She hired the number one shark of Orange County, and four (laughs) years, $439,000 in attorney's fees later, the two of them, five court appearances, the two of them went one night to a coffee shop, stayed all night, and worked out their own agreement. Wow. Wow. But you want a mediator, and a mediator should offer you a preliminary consultation at no cost to get to know how the mediator functions, if you're compatible with his or her personality and what the cost would be. And you want to know the mediator's training. Right. What kind of training would you look for? Are there certain certifications that you should look for? Well, there's a lot of mediation training these days. Okay. Although I'm I'm, uh, kind of advising one new lawyer who took mediation training 
but they didn't tell her anything about how to do the actual legal processing of the paperwork. <laughs> they only taught her was how to get down to a marital settlement agreement. <laughs> and by the way, all us mediators know we do not file a marital settlement agreement, if it's a good one, with the court, because a marital settlement agreement should include all your account numbers and who pays what and who gets which account, bank accounts, oh. uh, credit card accounts, and court files are public records. Oh, dear. So you have to know how to translate the marital settlement agreement into a, a judgment that gets filed with the court. Because a court is needed to sign a judgment that, yes, you're single again. And so you want portions of the mediated agreement, if they're not carried out yet, you put those in the judgment that you file with the court. Very good information. I was just kind of curious, with women in mediation, are there general differences between the way women approach mediation? Or Yeah, women are generally trained or is it brainwashed to be nice, to be accommodating, to be caretakers. Yeah. So a mediator ought to be prepared for a little communication education or assertiveness education. Interesting. Can you talk generally about the specific mistakes that maybe women make at this phase, knowing that we are really raised to please? (laughs) (laughs) Bobby, women that did mediation with me did not make mistakes. Ah, there you go. (laughs) Fabulous. I I like that. I had lists of uh, like a menu of here's all the possible issues that you might need to discuss. You know, it was a menu of what could possibly be decided in, in mediation. And, oh, excellent. And also discussion, uh, I had information on the kind of years to use, words to use, such as words that promote discussion, words that would stop discussion. Yeah, there you go. Let's say uh, you've gotten through the mediation, you have um, your prenup or postnup or agreements all signed. Let's say one of the parties doesn't live up to their side of the agreement. Is there something you can do before, like the last resort of going to court? You could put in a clause about uh, any problems will go to mediation and you could name the mediation process. Okay. I think most courts these days have a mediation section. Yeah. A process available. Yeah. And I think like for certain cases, you have to go to mediation before going to court. Well, that's definitely for child purposes. Okay. Okay. I mean, in this state, you have, if there's a parenting plan uh, disagreement, you have to go to mediation. Uh, Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So first of all, thank you. This has been so informative and I've really enjoyed speaking with you. What are the top three tips that you want people to know about how to successfully protect yourself in a relationship? Well, uh, I would say think like a lawyer, which is imagine worst case scenario (laughs) (laughs) and then work to prevent that by a written agreement. You know, what could possibly go wrong? Okay, well, then, you know, I'll write this down. And so we prevent that from happening. And and if all else fails, you have a clause at the end that says, you know, if we've got a serious problem, here's how we'll resolve it. Oh, excellent. Excellent. 
Well, thank you so much for your time and insight. I really appreciate it. And this has just been, again, really great information. It really allows people to think, yes. to learn. And a lot of this was about language, right? So you knowing correct language yes. when talking about all this and how to protect yourself in all stages of relationship. Any final thoughts? And where can people find you? If you want to see a lot about what I wrote about mediation, I wrote a heck of a lot of articles. JudithKalusny.com. Oh, terrific. And there's a disclaimer at the top in red that says, I'm not lawyering anymore, but this is given to you for information. But all the articles, all the stuff I wrote about mediation is there at JudithKalusny.com. Thank you all for listening to the Single Lady States podcast. For Judith's book, The Marriage License Handbook, go to Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. And to learn more about what Judith discussed and to join our community, go to our website at singleladyestates.com, connect and engage with our community, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Have a great day, everyone.